Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Wednesdays at SSP, a podcast produced by MIT Security Studies Program here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My name is Chris Burns, and I produce this series. This podcast features recordings of our program's Wednesday seminar series, where prominent voices in security studies are invited to give a lecture on their current research. Today's featured guest is Dr. Eric Min an assistant professor of political science at UCLA. Eric's research focuses on interstate diplomacy, information gathering and sharing during crises, and application of machine learning techniques to declassify documents. In today's program, Dr. Min asks, when, why, and how do belligerents choose to negotiate in the midst of war? He argues that wartime negotiations are underappreciated and highly strategic activities that are used to manage, fight, and potentially win wars. So good afternoon, uh, everyone. Um, welcome to the SSP uh, Wednesday Seminar. I'm Taylor Fravel, Director of the Security Studies Program. And it's my great pleasure today to welcome Eric Min from uh, UCLA, where he's an Assistant Professor of Political Science. So Eric, uh, welcome to MIT and to SSP. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you to everyone for being here in person. And to those of you who are here virtually, I appreciate all of you uh, joining me and inviting me out here to MIT, especially in person, uh, to present to you, as Taylor mentioned, part of my book manuscript, which is titled Words of War, Negotiation as a Tool of Conflict. So in order to motivate uh, this book and this project, I want to talk about two separate cases of diplomacy. Could you maybe click on the screen? I think we're There we go. Okay. So I want to talk about things by contrasting two different cases of diplomacy in interstate wars in the last century or or century and a half. The first example is the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905, a big conflict lasting around 18 months between the Russian and Japanese empire. When the war started coming to a close, one of the defining features of the Russo-Japanese War in terms of diplomacy is how quickly things really wrapped up the conflict. Here we have a picture of people meeting in Portsmouth, being mediated by Teddy Roosevelt. And if you look at things numerically, what you find is that the first and really only set of talks that happened during the Russo-Japanese War took place about 95% of the way into the war's overall length. It's in the remaining 5% of the war's duration that the two sides pretty quickly organized a peace that basically uh, codified Japan's victory over Russia. And it was a pretty swift settlement, notwithstanding some minor issues that they had to work out during their meeting. In contrast, if we come you know, much closer to recent times and think about the Falklands War of 1982, we have uh, the UK and Argentina uh, fighting over the Falkland Islands. And here, what defines diplomacy is just how frequently and how quickly it got into action. If you think about the war in terms of its overall duration, the first set of talks began 5% of the way into the overall war's duration, kicked off by people like Secretary of State Alexander Haig, um, UN Secretary General Pérez de Cuellar. And then these talks lasted for much of the war. Over 50% of the war's duration was spent facilitating some kind of negotiation between the two sides. And what defined these talks is that they failed multiple times. It was only once British troops landed on the Falkland Islands and retook it by force that they were able to create a document of surrender and negotiate a settlement that said that they basically had won the war. Now, of course, there's a bunch of different reasons why these two wars differ, but I think they're a useful motivation for the question that I want to try to answer, which is, is there something behind these contrasting stories of diplomacy? And another way of framing this might be to ask, what is the role of negotiations in the midst of war? 
Now, just to set up some definitions, or at least one definition, I'm going to say that negotiations are direct or mediated communication between active belligerents with the ostensible aim of reaching a mutual acceptable agreement. And we can talk more about that definition later, but I want to put that out there. Because if we use that definition, what we see is that about two-thirds of all interstate wars in the last two centuries have ended in some form of negotiated settlement, which suggests that diplomacy plays some important role in understanding when conflicts continue or come to an end. Now, despite that fact, and despite the fact that I think we're even more aware of this given the talks that are happening between Russia and Ukraine, our scholarly understanding of negotiations during war is less developed. I would say. If we look at bargaining models of war, which represent some of the forefront in this sort of conflict research, we get a pretty simple view of what negotiations are. In many of these formal models, we think of negotiations as a constant and mechanical reflection of the battlefield, where you have these convergence models that sort of ping pong between fighting and negotiating, and eventually the two sides sort of just eventually and inevitably converge upon some mutually acceptable agreement. And this just sort of happens. There's not that much strategy behind it. It's all dictated by the battlefield. As such, many of these models also imply that negotiations, all they do is just really end wars. And certainly, negotiations do end wars. But they're added to these models as just sort of an off-ramp to allow wars to end short of complete military victory or defeat. And overall, what that means is that negotiations are seen as a positive attempt at settlement, or at least a non-negative activity to conduct during war. While all of that sounds really nice and clean and intuitive and internally consistent inside the models, one of the problems with this is that it doesn't really line up with the historical record of how negotiations play out in conflict. I already illustrated that with the Russo-Japanese War and the Falklands War, but we can do this a little bit more big picture as well. If we look at negotiation data that I've collected for this project that I'll speak about a little bit more later in this talk, you can see the huge amount of heterogeneity that exists in the timing of negotiations and the frequency of negotiations. This histogram shows at what point during an overall trajectory of a war negotiations started across 92 wars in the last two centuries. And you see a wide amount of variation in when talks start. In some wars, talks start almost immediately once things get started. And in other wars, it happens right at the end, sort of wraps things up quickly. And you have a lot of bars in between as well. If you look at the proportion of wars spent negotiating across the 92 wars, you see a lot of heterogeneity there too. Many wars, um, there's not too much negotiation as a function of the overall duration, but in some, over half the war is spent negotiating. Now, what I would argue is that our scholarly theories of conflict don't give us a really good understanding of why this variation exists and what relationship exists between what's happening on the battlefield and what's happening at the negotiation table. Some might argue that this variation is just noise and maybe underscores the idea that negotiations are just sort of epiphenomenal, who cares about them? What I want to do in my project and in this book is develop a theory of wartime negotiation that suggests that diplomacy that happens during war is actually a highly strategic and important activity in conflict. And one of the takeaway points I hope to make is that negotiations not only help to end wars, which they certainly do, but they also help to manage, fight, and potentially win wars as well. So in order to make this argument, I want to define a couple forms or functions of negotiation which I think are important to understanding my theory of what negotiations can accomplish during conflict. In order to understand this distinction, I first want to define this idea that actors, when they're navigating negotiations or war, would think about whether negotiating would involve or kind of affect their reversion outcome or their best alternative to a negotiated agreement. 
Now, reversion outcome BATnet's pretty much the same thing. That's what outcome comes out of talks failing. Like if talks don't work out, what is the outcome that we will face? And I'm going to argue that belligerents kind of think about what these BATnets would look like if they choose to negotiate. And that's going to dictate a lot of what they do with regard to diplomacy during war. So one form of negotiation that emerges from this kind of calculation is what I call sincere negotiation. Sincere negotiation is probably implicitly what many people who think about negotiation think negotiations are, in that they are good faith attempts at reaching some form of potential settlement or mutually acceptable agreement. Now, the obvious reason why you would engage in sincere negotiations is that you're going to try to avoid the reversion outcome of more war. You're negotiating now because the hope is that you're able to prevent the continuation of fighting because you find it too painful or not worth um, the trouble. Now, to be clear, just because you negotiate sincerely doesn't mean that a, nego uh, that a settlement is inevitable, that it's certain to happen. It just sort of speaks to the intention that might exist behind an actor when they come to the table. And that's what most people would consider negotiation to be. However, I want to also suggest the idea that there's what we might call insincere negotiation, which means that actors might engage in bad faith attempts to use negotiations to extract what negotiation scholars like Freddie Clay or Paul Pilar would call side effects. Side effects are consequences to negotiation that are unrelated to the actual settlement of a dispute at hand. I am certainly not the first person to suggest that something such as insincere negotiation or bad faith diplomacy exists, but part of what I hope to do in this project is kind of incorporate that to a broader theory of negotiations to understand when these sorts of negotiations might happen. Now, the main reason why belligerents might do this is because they want to try to change the reversion outcome for themselves and create conditions that are better for them in the war if the war continues and if negotiations fail. In the context of conflict, there's a couple primary ways in which insincere negotiation might be useful in changing this reversion outcome. One would be to deflect political and pressure or blame in the midst of a conflict. Are you trying to say that I'm not the recalcitrant party, the other one is, I'm supposedly, supposedly negotiating in good faith, the other side's being difficult, therefore you should support us and oppose the other side. And we've seen some of that come out um, in peace talks right now between Russia and Ukraine. Another perhaps more concrete effect of insincere negotiations is that belligerents can try to stall for time during the fight in order to both signal resolve to the other side, showing that I'm willing to continue fighting while sitting at this table, and also to use pauses in fighting that are often associated with negotiations to rearm, regroup, and remobilize their military forces in order to try to fight more effectively later if they think that having that opportunity to you know, convert more of their latent capabilities into actual capabilities is useful for them. One other clarification I want to give before I uh, move forward is that I'm not suggesting that the choice between these is binary or that belligerents are walking in picking one or the other. What I'm suggesting is that they might prioritize one strategy over the other depending on what circumstances they are in during a conflict. So that leads to the question of how we can try to explain when each of these functions is used or prioritized by belligerents. So to understand that, we have to think about some of the costs and benefits that exist to whether you choose to negotiate or not during a conflict. Given that in most cases, uh, belligerents don't negotiate with each other, like 83% of the time in the wars I look at, it's probably a useful place to start to think about why you might not negotiate. Here, there's a couple interrelated reasons why belligerents would refuse to talk to one another. 
One is that there's really no use to negotiating because of some credible commitment problem that may have triggered the conflict that hasn't been resolved. If we don't believe that any agreement we make could be upheld because each side still has that um, you know, credible commitment problem and a reason to renege on the agreement, then what's the point of talking? We might not talk at all. However, another reason kind of connected to this that you might not negotiate with the other side is that offering to negotiate or looking eager to negotiate can be a signal of weakness or flagging resolve both to the enemy and to your own domestic audience. In recent work by Oriana Mastro, a really great book called The Cost of Conversation, Oriana Mastro argues that offering to negotiate can lead to a risk of what she calls adverse influence. Uh, inference, excuse me. Right? The idea that the other side will think that you're sort of suing for peace, which might embolden them to fight harder because they think they can extract more out of you. And it can also deflate domestic support, both politically and within your own military, to look like you're eager to negotiate with the other side. And for those reasons, we have a lot of historical examples, too, showing that leaders are hesitant to negotiate too frequently or too uh, quickly because they worry that it might signal something uh, to other audiences. Now, despite that, we know that negotiations do occur. So why would they occur? So this harkens back to the two functions of negotiation that I've discussed already. One reason you might negotiate is because you literally need to stop fighting. There's no purpose to this going on. Battling and kind of the, the trends from the battles have shown us whatever outcomes we can expect to occur. They're not looking good for us, so we might as well end the war to avoid further suffering. So you come to the table with a sincere intent to try to cease hostilities. However, again, what I want to argue is that that's not the only reason to negotiate, even though it's what models often kind of assume is the reason talks might occur. Another reason you might come to the bargaining table is to try to change your reversion outcome in a way that's more favorable to you. This can be true for one side, it could be true for both sides, which means that they come with more insincere kind of intentions and hoping to use diplomacy and really the failure of diplomacy in order to support their war aims. So what I want to do before I kind of get into the actual um, analysis is explain what factors I think are most important in dictating the decision, the cost-benefit calculation of whether or not to negotiate according to those sort of considerations I had on the previous slide. And I'm going to argue that there are two key factors that help to influence both when states choose to negotiate or actors choose to negotiate, as well as what kind of negotiation they're more likely to engage in, whether it's sincere or insincere. The first factor I think is really important is what I call latent external pressures for peace. This is a term that kind of captures the existence of outside third-party actors, institutions, norms, etc., that all help to facilitate diplomatic activity, that try to favor peace over conflict, etc. And the thing I want to point out here is I'm talking about sort of these forces and institutions that exist outside of the particular belligerence or particular conflict. Now, that's not to say that obviously third parties kind of moderate how much they try to intervene in a conflict depending on what the conflict is, but their ability to do so is affected by whether this infrastructure and these ideas already exist and allow them to kind of quickly activate forces to try to get uh, the belligerents to talk to one another and whether that culture and environment exists to try to facilitate diplomacy during conflict. So that's one big factor I suggest kind of creates um, a baseline for how much negotiations might happen. Because I argue in the book that when there are outside pressures to negotiate, 
this actually helps parties decide to negotiate more often because their fear about looking weak sort of becomes mitigated to some extent. Instead of having to offer to negotiate yourself, you might be in an environment where everyone's asking you to negotiate and almost forcing you to negotiate. And in those cases, you kind of look like you're acceding to the will of the international community and that you're cooperating as opposed to looking weak to any side. I argue that that allows for a freer use of negotiations, regardless of what the actual underlying intention of those talks might be, whether they're sincere or insincere. People who want to stop fighting can come to the table more quickly without looking weak or you know, fearing that they look weak. But actors who also want to negotiate insincerely are freer to do so as well without paying costs from the potential risk of adverse influence. As such, I would argue that higher amounts of latent external pressures that exist on the belligerents lead to a higher probability of both sincere and insincere negotiations. So just negotiations should be more frequent in general when there are higher um, external pressures to do so. The second factor I think is pretty familiar to a lot of people, which is the fortunes of fighting on the battlefield. We have extensive literature also already suggesting that clear trends from the battlefield um, lead parties to be more kind of on the same page about the future expectations of how the conflict would play out. And I argue that in those situations, belligerents would also have fewer concerns of adverse influence. One reason they might have fewer concerns is because there is nothing to infer about being weak. You are weak. You've done really poorly on the battlefield. There's only so much you can do in terms of diplomacy. So you have more and more incentive to come to the bargaining table because the truth of the matter has been borne out from the honesty of brutal fighting. What that also suggests is that if actors might have insincere intentions to negotiate, those benefits that they think that they could accrue from talking insincerely also fall if recent battlefield trends are really, really strong in one direction. Because diplomacy can only do so much in trying to help turn the tides of fighting or doing anything politically or militarily. So what I argue is that when there are higher amounts of information that are extracted from fighting, negotiations that do occur, right, conditional on them occurring, they are more likely to be sincere in nature, which means that they're more likely to actually end the conflict. However, if negotiations occur during a time when there are low amounts of information extracted from fighting, we would expect those negotiations to be more insincere, less likely to terminate fighting, and if anything, more likely to be used or abused in some sense to actually uh, support at least one side's war effort. So my way of trying to visualize the implications of this overall argument um, is going to be on this slide. On the left-hand side here, I'm looking at a world where hypothetically we have low latent external pressures for peace. What I want to kind of illustrate on this diagram is that as, according to the theory that I've proposed, the more that battlefield information is kind of obvious and that the more there is of it, the more likely there is a chance that negotiations will occur, right? that probability increases. At the same time, when battlefield information increases, the likelihood that any talks that occur will be sincere will also increase as you sort of filter out actors who might be interested in negotiating insincerely. In contrast, if we have a world where there's high latent external pressure on belligerents to talk to one another, I want to argue that regardless of how much information comes from the battlefield, the propensity of the two sides to negotiate will just be higher overall. 
and that it won't have a very strong relationship with what's going on in the battlefield just because they have this sort of pressure to negotiate. However, the likelihood of these negotiations being sincere or insincere is still affected by what's going on on the battlefield. The more, side one, uh, the more that one side is clearly winning, the more likely it is that any talks that do occur, even if they are frequent, are more likely to be sincere attempts to try to terminate hostilities and find a mutually acceptable agreement. You are listening to an episode of Wednesdays with SSP featuring Dr. Eric Min. So this is the big picture argument I'm trying to kind of um, prove or demonstrate in the book. Now, in the book, there's a bunch of different ways I try to test these implications, including qualitative studies, computational analyses, of, like text analysis of Korean War negotiation transcripts. But a core empirical contribution of this book uh, is a quantitative analysis sort of at the war day, uh, war day level of battles and negotiations across 92 interstate wars over the last two centuries. And that's what I want to focus my attention on for the remainder of this talk. So let me briefly talk about the data that I have at hand, but I'm happy to answer other questions you might have in the Q&A because I'm only going to talk about sort of the bare necessities that are necessary for us to kind of do the actual analysis itself. So big picture, what I've done is over the last few years and some very dark nights, especially in grad school, uh, collect data on about 1,700 battles and approximately 6,300 days of negotiations that took place in 92 interstate wars between 1823 and 2003. And this list basically comes from the correlates of war. Now, like I said, I'm only going to talk about what we need in order to do the analysis I want to show you in this talk. First, let me talk briefly about the battle data. For each of these 1,700 battles, I was able to find sort of the date, the participants, and the outcomes of the battles in terms of which side won, which means which side was able to either seize or defend some strategic objective that was at hand. For each of these battles, I code them as being positive one or negative one, depending on whether they were won by the war initiator or the war target. Obviously, plus one, negative one is a radical oversimplification, and we can talk more about that later, but I think it serves the point uh, for what I want to show you here. Here's a table that shows the breakdown of these battles, where it's a roughly even split between initiator and targets, and a small number in the middle that were deemed inconclusive in terms of the outcome. Second, moving on to negotiations, this is a pretty straightforward variable. I basically created a binary variable where for each war day, I determined whether there were any formal negotiations between, or not formal negotiations, excuse me, negotiations between formal representatives of the belligerent states where they exchanged and considered actual offers that might lead to a negotiated settlement. And that was a binary variable zero one. At the same time, I tried coding for each of those days of negotiation whether those talks were directly sought by the belligerents themselves, which I call internal negotiation, or whether these talks were products of third-party pressure, whether some outside party was responsible for orchestrating the talks and sort of making them happen. And I call that external negotiation. The reason I try to kind of distinguish between these two is that in the book I argue that this distinction might be a useful way to see whether or not third-party pressure worked in the sense of getting actors to come to the table. And a couple of results I want to show you also hinge on this distinction between internal and external negotiation. This table shows what the um, variable sort of looks like broken down. 
we see about 6,300 days of negotiation, or 17% of war days in the data. And if you split that down further, 11% are internal talks, 6% are external talks. So with that data in hand, we can try to create a couple explanatory variables that we're going to use to understand when and why belligerents choose to negotiate and whether it aligns with the theory that I've outlined. First, how do we measure latent external pressures and changes in them? I take a couple different strategies in the book, but today I want to focus on one main one that I think is particularly interesting, which is leveraging the huge amount of changes that took place in the post-1945 international environment. We have a bunch of scholars that have pointed out a variety of ways in which the world has changed and is more kind of pro-peace, anti-conflict in some ways since World War II. The advent of nuclear weapons, international organizations, norms against um, you know, territorial conquest or conflict, um, territorial integrity norms, you know, et cetera. And I'm going to argue that post-1945, these latent external pressures for peace, this institution, this infrastructure that exists to promote peace is going to be much stronger than what used to exist before 1945, and that I can leverage this as sort of a big test of how negotiations and the strategies behind them change. Second, I'm going to look at battlefield activity, which is going to be our you know, way of measuring information from fighting. The measure that I've created to account for this is what I call recent imbalance. In order to create this measure, what I do is I take all battle outcomes that have taken place over the last 60 days of a war, I sum them up, and then I take the absolute value of this number because I don't really care which side is winning or losing, I care about which, whether there's a clear trend in one side's favor or not. So this is an illustration of what that measure looks like for the Korean War where I do kind of look at things before the absolute value, and I call this uh, momentum, um, although I'm not going to really uh, rely on this measure in the talk. But what you see here is that the, um, the data that I've collected aligns pretty well with our qualitative understanding of the war. The positive upswing indicates that North Korea uh, kind of swept down the peninsula, had a lot of military success early on in the conflict. The kind of upswing, um, or excuse me, the downswing into negative territories indicates when the UN command intervened and sort of turned things um, in its own favor. And then the upswing again into positive numbers indicates when China intervened and kind of swung things back as well. And then things peter off a little bit in the last two years. So this is the kind of data I have for the individual wars. And in the study that I'm going to show you, I've taken the absolute value to just see whether there are clear trends on the battlefield or not over the last 60 days. Whether I use 30, 60, 90, the results don't fundamentally change, so I'm just sort of splitting the difference with uh, 60. Okay, so with all of that in hand, I want to show some of the analysis uh, that's in the book um, to kind of demonstrate that hopefully you believe that the theory holds some water. First, I want to address whether this like 1945 line that I say is important actually is important in the data. One thing I did to test whether or not 1945 is actually noteworthy, especially when it comes to negotiations, is use a series of structural break tests to in, like, see at what point does the data, without my intervention, suggest that the frequency of negotiations systematically changed. And through all the models I tried, 1945, or really 1946, but it doesn't make any difference, it's basically the same thing, comes out as the year in which rates of diplomacy systematically shifted upward and did not drift back down. So even though I didn't say anything to the data, the data themselves say that diplomacy changed in some way following the end of Second World War. 
We can also visualize this too. On the left-hand side, what I've done is looked at the frequency or the kind of the, yeah, the frequency of negotiations in pre-1945 wars as a function of their overall duration. And I've broken it down to all negotiations, internal negotiations, external negotiations. And what you see here is that through much of the war's kind of duration overall, not super high levels of negotiation. But on the right-hand side of the figure, you see this upward spike that's pretty much driven by internal negotiations, which indicates that many wars ended rapidly when the belligerents themselves chose to start talking, and they came to a pretty rapid settlement. In contrast, and that, that actually lines up really well with the Russo-Japanese War and sort of the story behind that. In contrast, in the post-1945 environment, this data looks completely different. It's a lot more noisy in terms of just negotiations just sort of happen all the time in some fairly constant level. You see that much of the upswing at the beginning is driven by external negotiations where third parties are sort of um, you know, pirating, or piloting these um, diplomatic endeavors. Those eventually sort of fade away, and they're not fully replaced by it, but are sort of matched by internal negotiations over the course of the conflict as well. But in any case, all of this is just not as precise as it is in the pre-1945 context. And the Falklands War is, again, another good example or illustration of this sort of dynamic. Now, we can try to express this or um, analyze this in a slightly more rigorous way. In order to test my theory properly, what I need to be able to do is create a model that's simultaneously able to indicate when belligerents are willing to talk to one another, and then conditional on whether they're talking or not, whether those talks are likely to end the war or continue the war. What I found is that a multi-state model is probably the most effective way to try to capture these complex dynamics in the war. So what the multi-state model is doing in this uh, analysis that I'm doing is treating every single war as sort of this state transition uh, system between three different potential states of conflict. So on any war day, we could be in a situation where there are no negotiations between the two sides, where there are negotiations between the two sides, or the war comes to an end. And then these arrows show you what transitions can take place between these states on any given day. And each of them I sort of label with some intuitive um, label. So we can go from negotiating to not negotiating or the other direction. If we don't have negotiations, but the next day the war ends, that's a military victory or defeat. And then if we do have negotiations and the next day the war comes to an end, we would call that a negotiated settlement. And of course, on any given day, on the next day, they can stay in the same state. So I didn't draw the arrows that point to themselves, but that's part of this as well. So this is the kind of dynamic that I'm trying to capture. And note here, too, that once you get to the termination of war, that's a terminal node, the war comes to an end. So we're going to try to model this. One other really nice benefit of the multi-state model is that it allows for there to be separate effects for each of these transitions. Every single variable can have differential impacts on the transition from um, no negotiation to termination or no negotiation, no negotiation to negotiation. Right? Depending on which transition we're going into, the model can say that there's a different effect of some given variable, which is really important to being able to test uh, my theory properly. 
So I'm not going to talk about a series of controls that I've included in the model. Many of them are standard to interstate war literature. And there's a couple other measures I included based on my own data that I think are noteworthy. And we can talk about them in Q&A if people are interested. But for the interest of time, I'm going to just show you some of the main results that come out of the multi-state model. So in order to kind of formally show what I um, indicated with those two contrasting plots before, what I'm now going to do is apply the multi-state model to the universe of pre-1945 wars and see how battlefield activity impacts negotiation behavior in these conflicts. This is the coefficient plot that shows the estimated coefficients uh, from this model. In some sense, a coefficient plot might have backfired in making it harder to interpret uh, what's going on here. Um, so let me just point your attention basically to this top area with recent imbalance, um, which is the main variable of interest here. And I'll just for, uh, kind of say in words as well what these results actually indicate to us. What the top square, uh, which represents the transition to starting negotiations, indicates is that when there are higher levels of recent imbalance from the battlefield, that is associated with a higher likelihood of negotiation onset. And this is statistically significant at at least the 95% level. I think it actually is at the 99% level as well. Moreover, the bottom square here, which represents the transition into negotiated settlement, indicates that high recent imbalance is also associated with any negotiations happening at that time being more likely to end wars, which I interpret as, more likely than not, a sincere attempt at trying to end um, the conflict. All right, so the same condition of high recent imbalance both leads to negotiations happening and to those negotiations actually leading to the termination of conflict. And that's very much in line with the visual I showed you a couple slides before for pre-1945 wars. So in contrast, we can do the same exercise for post-45 wars. And here the results are a bit different. Here we find that recent imbalance no longer has any meaningful relationship in understanding when negotiations actually begin. It's just sort of a noisy connection between those two. However, recent imbalance still continues to explain when negotiations that do occur are more likely to end wars. So we're still able to get some leverage in understanding when talks are more likely to terminate conflict or not. However, the kind of connection between recent battlefield outcomes and whether talks start at all is fundamentally decoupled in these post-1945 wars. So if I bring you back to these two figures that I showed you, the statistical results from the multi-state model pretty much align with what was predicted here, where in pre-1945 wars, where they have low latent external pressure, battlefield information both dictates the frequency of negotiation onset as well as whether those talks are more likely to terminate conflict. However, in the post-1945 war, where there's higher latent external pressure, there's just high levels of negotiation in general. It's not really um, connected to battlefield information. However, the likelihood of those talks, ending war or not, is still driven by fortunes of fighting on the battlefield. I'll also note here that these results are robust to using different battle scores, where I try to weigh battles according to their length, because I know the plus one, minus one is a radical simplification of how these battles might be interpreted by leaders. I'll also note that in additional analysis, I've tried to kind of look at um, external or latent pressures for peace in a different way by looking at distinctions between wars fought only by minor powers and wars that involve major powers. And I show that wars only involving minor powers are much more likely to have external negotiations and sort of be pushed around uh, to negotiate uh, by major powers. 
And then one other thing I'll just point out here because it's part of the broader project, but I don't have time to show you the results, is that I also show that negotiations lead to lower levels of contemporaneous fighting on the battlefield, which I think is an important part of the story and also leads to the one last thing I want to show uh, from the analysis I've done uh, before I bring things uh, to a close here. So part of my argument suggested that insincere negotiations may actually be used to help affect what's going on on the battlefield itself, the war itself, in terms of remobilizing, rearming, etc. I'd like to show some evidence that that actually might be true. So what I want to analyze is what happens in negotiations that end up failing to terminate a conflict. Is anything different in the war following those failed talks? To analyze this, what I do is I look at battlefield activity in the 30 days prior to each of these talks that don't end a war, and I compare it to the battlefield activity that comes in the 30 days following the end of these failed talks. If I run some regressions here, I get some results, and mainly the post-negotiation results here on top are most important. And once again, I'll just kind of summarize in words what this result tells us, or what these results tell us. First, what we find is that failed talks tend to be followed by battlefield activity that systematically, not always, but generally, favors the war target. War targets do better on the battlefield after these failed talks. And I argue that this shows that war targets are able to often use diplomacy to cut into a war initiator's first mover advantage when they sort of start a conflict um, themselves. And I have a bunch of sort of robustness text to show that um, this seems to indeed be the case. Moreover, I also find that failed talks tend to be followed by fighting on the battlefield that produces outcomes that are more consistent with what we might consider to be pre-war expectations. I didn't talk about the inconsistency variable that's listed here, and we can in the Q&A if we're interested, but my results do show that fighting becomes a little bit more like what we might expect based on just capability ratios following failed talks compared to before these talks take place. I have a variety of tests where I show that this relationship is meaningful, that it really is around diplomacy that these changes take place, and that this is not just some statistical artifact um, that I've discovered uh, from the data. And I think this is noteworthy because it shows us evidence that diplomacy actually has some potential concrete impact on the battlefield uh, itself. So uh, to wrap things up, what I'm hoping to show in this book and hopefully in this presentation, which is a distilled version of the argument, is that negotiations do not only help to end um, things on the battlefield. They do not only reflect what's going on on the battlefield. They can also be used to manage and reshape what's going on on the battlefield. I think that this theory helps to address some big gaps that exist between our theoretical understanding of what war and diplomacy are and the reality of war and diplomacy as we've seen in the past and as we see it right now. Empirically speaking, the new data that I've sort of presented and used here I think are important because even if you want to just toss away everything I've presented here, you can still use these data hopefully to sort of open up the black box of war, look at intra-war dynamics in an interesting way that might not have been possible in the past. Thinking a little bit more about policy implications and how this applies to real life, uh, my argument has some sort of concerning or difficult implications for policy because it does suggest that sometimes negotiations can be sort of a negative thing to happen during conflict. And this idea that it cannot hurt to negotiate might be a misguided one. So in certain instances, my theory suggests that 
trying to get parties to negotiate may actually help to exacerbate the conflict rather than help it. Now, my theory does say that there are certain instances where third parties might be helpful, but we have to kind of keep this in mind and realize that this unconditional push for diplomacy might actually be counterproductive in some cases. Now, of course, there are welfare implications in that sometimes you just might want to pause fighting through negotiations for humanitarian reasons, and that's certainly a part of the conversation. But when we think about that calculation, we have to keep in mind that there are potential downsides to negotiation, that it's not just always good to try to do it which is complicated and difficult to think about. I think we're very cognizant of this in this day and age, obviously, because of the Russo-Ukrainian war. And one of the notable things about the analysis of peace talks during this war is that people pretty readily accept this idea that especially Russia may not be negotiating in good faith, that they're using these talks for political purposes to sort of pause fighting while they try to reorganize themselves and direct themselves to eastern Ukraine instead. And one of the ironies is that as much as people just intuitively understand that this might happen, a lot of scholarly literature would not have a very good um, opportunity or kind of leverage to try to address when and why this sort of negotiation would occur. And what I hope my book is doing is helping to fill that gap and helping to understand when diplomacy works, when it might not work as effectively, and really underscoring the fact that I think we're all more and more aware of with each passing day that diplomacy is a strategic tool of conflict and that we need to take it seriously moving forward in the study of war. With that, I thank you so much for your time already, and I look forward to the discussion that follows. Thank you. You are listening to an episode of Wednesdays with SSP featuring Dr. Eric Min. He will now take questions from the audience. Um, this is a really interesting talk and it's really a very impressive data that you have. Um, I think a lot of what you, a lot of your findings remind me a lot of the Civil War termination literature and what we know about third party negotiators there and battlefields there. And it's, it's interesting to see it reflected in the interstate war with some of the same dynamics. And I'm curious to what extent you think either your theory extends to civil war as well as interstate war, or how you might think about the relationship between these different types of war. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Thank you for that. I certainly do think that even though uh, my empirical analysis is in the realm of interstate war, and that was sort of the motivation for it, that a lot of the ideas that I have presented here in some ways apply even more readily to the civil war context. In, this, in, in a couple different ways. One is that because we're looking often at intrastate actors and often sort of minor powers and then uh, kind of rebel groups inside the state, uh, there might be even more power that outside actors have to sort of force negotiations in a way that they might not be able to do as readily with states. I argue that they're still able to often press states into negotiation but it might be even more easy to do so in sort of the intrastate uh, war context. And we've seen that like with the Syrian civil war where they just kind of come to talk pretty frequently even though they don't really um, amount to much. The other reason why I think this might apply more is that if part of the argument is that negotiations can be used to try to curry political favor or to sort of pause things in order to regroup and remobilize. I would argue that rebel groups and insurgencies often have even more incentive to do this sort of behavior and sort of use negotiations as like uh, a weapon of the week in the sense of engaging in rebel um, diplomacy like Ray Gohong, you know, talks about um, where they can use this platform to try to legitimize themselves, to try to pause things, to get um, additional international um, support for their cause. So 
I imagine if you kind of replicated the same study at the Civil War level, you would find similar um, dynamics or even stronger ones because I honestly think the incentives to do this and the ability to do this would be higher um, within states rather than across states. And if someone wants to do that, please, please go ahead. Just know it'll be, it'll be tough. Uh, very pleasant. So I have some several disparate observations. Um, one, in this, you know, if you're leveraging a rational theory of war, uh, you know, presumably in fighting, we're, we're measuring two things. You're measuring relative capability and relative will. Mm -hmm. So one question I might have is, is the process of diplomacy in part about that measurement of relative will? Mm -hmm. right? so relative will is actually pretty difficult to measure. So is there something going on inside the black box of negotiations that is instrumental to war outcomes, and, or to, to, to the outcome of diplomacy, to getting to the understanding of mutual power and mm -hmm. mutual will that, that, um, that we need? Uh, I guess my second question is not is just about uh, various um, you know, excursions or sensitivities that you had. Uh, battlefield cost and war costs, right? You know, one side or the other may be winning, winning battle after battle, but it may be paying a humongous price. Yes. Um, I, you had a time variable in there. Um, I'm wondering the you know, duration of battle. I wonder if you also have a, any kind of a cost of battle variable that you tested to see if that has any effect on outcomes. Mm -hmm. And then I guess I want to get inside this a little bit. Um, since I, like many been observing the present war, uh, I found myself going back to Clausewitz and to his very long chapter on the advantages of defense, mm -hmm. right? tactical strategic advantages of defense. And one of his most cogent observations is time not used by the attacker redounds to the advantage of the defender. The defender reaps where he does not sow. Right? So if these negotiations tend typically to favor the object of the initial attack, which it sounds like in your last slide you were suggesting, and this seems to be a regularity. Why is it that the attacker goes into these? Because people are talking now as if negotiations disproportionately favor the Russians. Politics observes that in general the time is good, the block is good, it's going to favor the defender. That's, that's clearly what's been happening mm -hmm. throughout this war. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if there's something in your data that speaks to this question but also raises this other puzzle is why does the attacker fall for it? Because mm -hmm. right? it seems like the attacker falls for it over and over. Yes. I'll, I'll ask one, I'll make one other point just for fun and ask you what you think. Right? You have two types of negotiations, sincere and insincere. I wonder if there's a third, which I which is called pro forma or performative, mm -hmm. that it's all directed to the outsiders just because it's what you do. And it has actually no implications whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It's you know, you just you're forced to sit down because there's these audiences out there you kinda care about them, you don't know why. Right. But you're you're neither being insincere nor sincere. Yes. You're just showing them. Right. Okay, no, thank you for those. Uh, no, I, I'm going to take them all, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to be efficient in responding to them. Um, I mean, perhaps the first question might be the one where I um, have the maybe least satisfying answer about negotiations as a sign of resolve or will. I do certainly think that diplomacy does have that role of being able to show resolve. 
in my Korean War study, which I didn't um, present here, uh, what I argue is that um, during the talks at Kaesong and Panmunjom, that um, the two sides were just kind of wasting time at the bargaining table very intentionally, like so obvious that screaming that they're slaughtering one another is not going to get anywhere, that all of that was first um, political performance and propaganda, but also a way of them trying to show their resolve to one another, saying like, we can waste all the time we want here while we're killing each other. So I do think that negotiations do play some of that informational role with respect to resolve. And that is one of the places where um, belligerents can try to kind of push back on the realities of what capabilities look like on the battlefield by saying, like, you know, we might be sort of be losing right now, but I'm willing to just waste time here to show you um, that, you know, we're, we're willing to go this uh, through the long haul. So you should at least update your your perception of resolve. So I think that's certainly true. Absolutely. And maybe better explained in other parts of the book or analyzed in that way. Uh, with respect to costs of battle, absolutely true that um, the costs of battle contextualize the sorts of um, outcomes that I'm measuring in my analysis. Right now, the battle data doesn't have a good way of measuring those costs because it was really difficult to find um, the number of casualties or losses associated with each of these battles. I'm currently working on um, collecting that data with a bunch of RAs, so it's not just me doing it um, this time. Um, and my hope is that later I would be able to actually account for those costs in a more systematic way. The only thing I can say here is, like I said, if you reweight battles by their length, which is a, a very imprecise measure of how costly they were, the results still hold. And even if the costs are a separate dimension, we are seeing that the outcomes of those battles do have a meaningful relationship with whether negotiations happen um, or not. And then thirdly, again, I'll just punt to my Korean War case. Um, that's another place where I'm able to uh, distinguish between movement on the battlefield and actual losses on the battlefield, because I have these daily reports about movements and separating them from casualties, both for the UN command and for the ROKA. Um, and there we can sort of see similar um, relationships popping up um, as well. But th those are some of the limits to this quantitative analysis that I've done in terms of capturing those costs. So, you know about the, the, the work in military operations research on breakpoint hypotheses. Mm -hmm. So there is some data that's been collected. Sure, there, there have been data by them and by um, Alex Weisiger. He had some battle casualty data. The problem with some of those is that either their coverage is... Um, much lesser than what I'm, I'm capturing, or in Weisinger's case, it's captured at a different level of analysis than what I'm doing. So there's some mismatches there, but I'm hopefully in the next year, I'd be able to have some better data to, to capture that. Um, with respect to the advantage of defense and why especially war initiators would choose to engage in negotiations when there is this systematic kind of um, trend favoring the defender, um, or the target, excuse me. Um, I'd say there's a couple different reasons this is this still happens. Um, one partially comes back to these latent external pressures to negotiate, where I argue that sometimes when actors feel like they just need to negotiate and sort of perform and go through the motions, they'll come to the table to do that, um, even though they might know like something not super great would happen. Um, on that note as well, even though we see this like general effect that redounds in the war target's favor, um, it is sort of a, a lottery in some sense, where it's about like 60 to 67 percent of the time, um, war targets do better following uh, failed negotiations, but it's not 100 percent. 
Um, so certain times, war initiators might still think that they can do better themselves as well after negotiations come um, to an end. Um, the other thing that I would point out is that in some of these cases, war initiators will come to the table because they think that they've basically achieved their ends and don't know what else to do except trying to codify what they've gotten through the fighting. So like the war between China and India in 1962, um, I would argue that China sort of thought that it had gotten most of what it wanted in its limited, pretty limited military aims in that conflict. And then they tried to negotiate. And in the end, India sort of stalled for time and was able to kind of push back and reclaim some of its territory. But China might have known that something like that might happen, but they didn't know what else to do because they had pretty much gotten what they were looking for. Um, this is a perennial kind of question with uh, the analysis I've done. Um, so hopefully some of that kind of uh, responds, and I should certainly explore that more in the book um, as well. Um, the last question about performative, that's a great point. I would say that in the book, I was hoping um, that the performative angle is part of what I would call insincere negotiations, where I mentioned that one of the um, the objectives of insincere negotiation would be like deflecting political blame uh, and political pressure um, that I'm hoping that I can incorporate that into this idea of negotiating for side effects where we're just here, you know, to go through the motions of diplomacy because it will make people happy, but we have no intention of actually uh, like bringing the war to an end. But the side effects do exist because through the act of negotiating, as false as it might be, we're going to kind of make ourselves look better or kind of get people off our backs. And that's part of what I want to say is in sincere negotiations. And perhaps that comment means I should make that point more explicitly in, in the theory. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Great. Uh, Julian, I saw a two-finger. Um, this oh. is my one. This is your one? Okay, over to you. Um, thanks. I want to expand a little bit on the idea of costs, since mm -hmm. it's great to hear that you're already working on it, um, because I think there is a little bit of theoretical leverage you can get there as mm -hmm. well. Because the combatants, right, should have superior, uh, both superior knowledge of what the actual losses are versus external pressure, yeah. states, whatever. Sure. Um, they should also have greater saliency for their losses, right? Mm -hmm. Um, versus the strategic things that are happening. So right. if you can, one way to think about this maybe as you go forward would be to think of um, losses in terms of casualties should affect the bargaining um, of the combatants, whereas maybe things that are happening in terms of strategic outcomes on the battlefield, which are easier to observe, which are maybe more salient in general to external interests, um, those should generate different effects during negotiations. Yes. No, I think that there's definitely a case for that. Um, unfortunately, like I said, I cannot address that right now with the data. But I, I do think that um, the interaction between costs and outcomes is a really important and interesting um, topic where, like I said, the Korean War stuff is one point in that. Um, but I think your suggestion that there might be even just like broader differences strategically in how they're interpreted and used is interesting. And I'll definitely keep that in mind hopefully um, act on that in the next year. Fingers crossed. Thank you. Um, I know Eric and Greenberg may not uh, survive the end of the seminar, and so uh, <laughs> uh, I want to make sure that we get his, his question in. So Eric, over to you. Uh, thanks, Taylor, and thanks, Eric, for, for a really cool talk. 
Uh, I guess my question uh, maybe builds upon Barry's question about um, different types uh, of negotiating. I'm wondering if, and maybe this is answered in the, the Korea case, uh, but sometimes the content of the negotiations matters or varies beyond just sincere or insincere cases. So even within the sincere cases, is there a variation in the, the type of things that are being negotiated? Because one might imagine there's a range of things, um, everything from prisoner exchanges to you know, cessation hostilities in certain areas, all of which can contribute to the resolution of hostilities. Right. And so do you, does that kind of very nuanced level variation matter at all in your story? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it certainly would. But I think also you pointed toward the fact that this uh, analysis that I showed here cannot capture that sort of variation. But going back to, maybe I should have just presented the Korean War stuff. Um, with the Korean War case, I am able to try to better distinguish like what kinds of stuff are being discussed in these negotiations. Now, even there, um, it's a pretty rough cut in that my main kind of area of analysis is whether they are talking about substantive issues that were on the agenda or whether they were not. And usually not means literally they were screaming at each other or just saying like, um, you know, you're being uh, uncooperative. Let's meet tomorrow. Um, so that is a place where I'm able to better address that. And the results there do show that kind of the, the relationship I've shown here um, about when there's more recent information on the battlefield, they do talk more substantive issues. And when there's not, they just are kind of yelling at each other uh, that that relationship does still Hold so that is at least one kind of um, gesture toward the content of negotiations. Also, at least reflecting the underlying um, kind of motivations behind negotiations. I'm just wondering if there's any value in looking at kind of variations of substantive topics discussed as well. Oh sure, yeah, uh, probably. I mean, I think especially in the Korean War case, like when actors decide to return to topics that had already been discussed. In the past, that might be an interesting like sign of where it might look sort of substantive, but they're often kind of throwing in like sort of uh, poison pills um, in order to kind of mess things up. I like saying the Soviet Union should be a neutral member um, who like oversees the armistice, and the UN says, like, "What are you talking about?" Um, I do think there probably is more to leverage there. So, yeah, I'll take a look at maybe doing more kind of topic-based stuff in that. Um, analysis too. Sure. Thank you. I think we'll talk a lot about the Korean War at lunch. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm very interested in that particular conflict. Um, uh, Nina Coleman. Um, thank you very much. I think, uh, so, like, kind of building on comments already made, like, not all battles are equal, yes. and so, you know, have different psychological effects, media coverage, lessons learned. So, either in case studies you've already done or perhaps case studies you could do, like, I'd be interested in hearing about battles that had, like, a, like a single battle that had an outsized effect on, like, willingness to negotiate, mm -hmm. or, like, a battle that your theory would expect a willingness to negotiate, but there actually wasn't. So, um, either something you already looked at, or perhaps something you could look in the future. And, um, one comment is about the, maybe like a positive aspect of external pressure, is mm -hmm. I think in the Russo-Japanese War, uh, in that case, there were, the Japanese were also negotiating the second Anglo-Japanese alliance, mm -hmm. so they were kind of getting the security guarantees. I think mm -hmm. when the external pressure for peace is matched, it's not just words, but you know, the external people actually want peace and are willing to offer uh -huh. security guarantee, then that might actually be like a good thing for sincere negotiations. Like the Japanese could afford to be more sincere because they also knew that they had this alliance coming into effect, which is a secret. Oh, okay. No, that, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, no, thank you for those. So 
I think my answer to your first question is I need to think about that more, especially like the sort of the, the either the media impact or sort of the outsized impact versus not of battles. Um, there might be a couple cases in the Arab-Israeli war that more than might pop up, but I haven't actually thought about it in that explicit way. But I think that would be really useful, especially um, when it comes to how external actors also interpret these battles and like what kind of pressure they might bring to bear. Uh, so I'll definitely look more into that. Um, with respect to the positive aspect of external pressure, um, actually, the one thing I'd mention is that in my interpretation of the Russo-Japanese War, I would actually call that a case of internal negotiation. And that actually speaks to a distinction I make in the book where I don't consider mediation and external negotiation to be the same thing. Because in the Russo-Japanese War, the Japanese um, government and like the, the ambassador from Japan basically secretly asked... Uh, you know, President Roosevelt, like, can can you do something for us? So, like, even though Roosevelt was the one in public who sort of started this, it was very much a sought both by Japan and by Russia sort of in private. Um, now, that said, your story about why Japan might have been more willing to engage in negotiations because of that treaty could, could play a part, right, in their their greater willingness to um, reach out um, to, the, uh, to the Russians um, indirectly. Um, but yeah, I think in some of these cases, sort of the external security environment should certainly play a role, um, too. And that would be, again, something to better address in the, the qualitative cases since, well, there might be some ways quantitatively to try to address that, too, like alliances or something. But yeah, um, I'll look more into that because the qualitative cases still um, require a lot more fleshing out. Right. Is that a two-finger? Yeah. Okay. So you can kind of run through this pretty quickly if you feel like you've already covered it, but I have kind of drawing for a couple of shows that people draw. <laughs> so I, your talk reminded me of uh, Capital Nolan's book, The Allure of Battle, where I believe the basic argument is that historians, it's, it's, it's your book too, mm-hmm. that historians fixate on the idea of decisive battles, but that if we kind of look at wars holistically, oftentimes it's sort of underlying societal, industrial mobilization capacities that sort of determine outcomes of wars. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious. Do you see evidence that decisive battles are a thing mm-hmm. in your work? Or mm-hmm. is there an element to which, within a certain range, all battles are happening? Yeah, no, so I mean, I would say that the idea that there are incredibly decisive battles that help to dictate how wars play out is probably an exaggeration or a little bit more like ex post kind of marking, oh, you know, in retrospect, this battle was really important. Um, But if you look at both sort of the empirical analysis where all these battles contribute, as well as sort of qualitatively looking at how these leaders were interpreting kind of fighting as it was going along, um, they don't often like look at individual battles as being decisive and, oh, we need to give up now or like, oh, this is the turning point. It happens every once in a while. But that very much seems more like a historian's or historical like kind of um, retrospective view where often a lot of the battles that are deemed decisive, especially are strategically decisive in that, like looking back, we realize, oh, like the Battle of Kiev was super important for the Russians because they held the Germans at bay and sort of made them suffer through a winter. But in that time, that was one of the worst battles uh, for Russia in terms of losses. So um, in that sense, like the kind of retrospective strategic lens people use to assess battles and how important they are is just kind of not either possible or not as accurate to do in the moment. So I would say both quantitatively and qualitatively, um, 
that assessment I would probably agree with that there's an overemphasis on decisiveness of battles. Um, as much as it's interesting and important that that's not the day-to-day -day, um, kind of uh, motor behind decision making. So I'm going to go to the Zoom now. I've got two hands up. Uh, Rich Nielsen, uh, let me start with you. Hey, uh, this is really great. I enjoyed it. It kept my interest and uh, gave me way more questions than I have time to ask. Um, so if this is ill-formed, that's why. Um, first, how are you thinking about negotiations prior to the start of the war? Is that a thing for you? Uh, and if the war is a breakdown of negotiations, does the balance of perceived sincerity or insincerity prior to the war affect the balance of sincerity or insincerity in negotiations during the war, theoretically, empirically, whichever way you want to think about it? Second thrust of my uh, thinking is about meta diplomacy around the diplomacy. So if the goal is to try to convince, if there's an instrumental norm that like you have to now negotiate regardless of whether you want to negotiate because there's external pressure, but it's not internalized. So what, what Barry was calling pro forma, I would call the internalization of the norm, where like actors truly think that they ought to negotiate, even if it's not strategically advantageous, because it's just the thing you do. And I think you're talking about instru an instrumental norm where you do it because it, you think it's strategically advantageous to you. So Putin thinks that he's benefiting in some way, either on the battlefield in the future or by looking good to external actors, right? So sorry, a clarifying tangent. Um, what is the diplomacy that you do outside of the diplomacy to convince those third parties that you're sincere? So like, is it press releases about your negotiations? Do those have a certain tone? What does it mean that Russia seems to like the, the, the key negotiator claims one thing and then like the like other key actors closer to Putin are like, no, actually we're we don't we didn't hear anything from the Ukrainians that we believe we're no more closer to a deal. That even questions this notion of sincerity you have. Like it almost seems like Russia is sincerely signaling that they are not that they are not trying to resolve the conflict. So like what is sincerity there? Uh how should I think about kind of those two things, the prior negotiations and then like the meta framing of the negotiations? Yeah, no, thank you for those questions. Um, with respect to pre-war negotiations, um, just on a concrete level, my analysis doesn't account for that. And the theory probably has limited things to say about it. That said, I do think that maybe your intuition or my interpretation of your intuition is probably correct in that the nature of um, whatever negotiations might have broken down and led to the conflict could sort of um, set the stage for the sort or the, the the likelihood of negotiations that do occur during war being more um, sincere or insincere. Um, that said, I'll still point out that the empirical results do show that like there is this concrete relationship between, or at least in certain cases, a concrete relationship between uh, battlefield outcomes and the nature of diplomacy. So even though there might be these background conditions that affect kind of um, the relationship that the two sides might have, um, the forces of fighting do still seem to play an important part in dictating um, what happens there. But I do think it is something 
worth looking into and whether I would try to collect more data on that for each of these conflicts or do something more qualitative um, is sort of an open question. I mean, I'd prefer to do something that doesn't involve creating a bunch more data. Uh, but no, I, I think that's a really important um, question that perhaps I should address a little bit more. With respect to sort of meta diplomacy around diplomacy, um, I think your comments and various comments are pointing to either, like I said, my need to be clear about what I want in sincere negotiation to represent or uh, delineating these like sort two different motivations for insincere negotiation or sort of splitting it up into this like strategic act. And then what you're suggesting is sort of this just like internalized norm. We think we have to do it um, because my my prior sort of, I guess, assumption coming in is that this like internalized diplomacy where you just sort of do it because you think you have to um, still would be strategic. Like it might be norm normatively like internalized, but you still do it because you think that it will give you some sort of benefit in terms of making you look like you're playing sort of by the rules or expectations that outside parties have for you. Um, but maybe I need to think about that a little bit more kind of distinctly um, because like to this day, when you see like in Russia and Ukraine or any of these recent wars, um, actors coming out after these negotiations and saying like, oh, you know, the other side's being difficult. We tried to give out very reasonable things and then framing what they've done to the public as like we've been cooperative and the other side hasn't. I would suggest that anytime that happens, some of the motivation to talk might be a normative sort of reflex. Maybe we should do it. Um, but the fact that they're sort of exploiting it in some way or trying to frame it in some way to their advantage does show like a still a strategic uh, motivation behind uh, what they're doing with um, diplomacy. And then uh, with respect to like what's happening with Russia, where it seems very much like they're making clear that they're not wanting to settle. Um, I would consider that to be, and I, that's why I consider what Russia is doing right now, especially to be an act of insincere negotiation, where if anything, they're sort of, again, demonstrating their resolve um, by saying like, we're willing to continue fighting by not changing our preconditions or having preconditions we know are patently unacceptable, um, but using sort of the veneer of diplomacy as a way of trying to, you know, um, improve their political position and get people to think that they're actually doing something, even though a lot of uh, analysts like I showed um, kind of know that that's probably not the case. I, I don't know how directly I answered all your questions, but I hope some of that at least touches upon some of the points you raised. Thanks. Thanks. So, uh, sticking in the Zoom, uh, Jim Walsh. Um, yes, let me lower my hand here. Thank you so much. I enjoyed your talk very much. And I really don't know very much about war termination negotiation, but I've had a little exposure to other types of negotiation. So I'd like to ask some small questions, more of the form of, while you were pursuing your own questions, did you happen to see anything that you have that would give you the ability to comment on this other thing? And so let me uh, start first. I think it's really intriguing that you're trying to wrestle with whether there's some temporal dimension of this, that, you know, post-45, different institutions, different norms, or whatever, affect uh, the negotiations because there's more encouragement of negotiation. I think that's a really interesting idea. And it sparks in me the question, insofar as so much of this uh, war termination negotiation stuff is often centered around 
revealed strengths. You know, once everyone sort of has the right information and they know what's going on, then they should, you know, rationally settle up at the precise point that makes sense or something like that. It's an exaggeration, but that's sort of the way people talk about it. And I'm wondering whether, and you probably can't answer this, us 45, you know, we've had an information revolution. And so I would expect that states and wars probably have more information about their battlefield information than they did in the old days. That, that through uh, you know, outside intelligence services or whatever, if their generals are lying to them or if it's foggy and it's not clear what's really happening, that in general, the quality of information leaders have about the quality of their battles should be much higher these days. And I wonder if that has uh, an impact on the speed or the resolution process or whatever. I'm just putting that out there. Number two, uh, I guess I would ask, the, and this is another question, what, is there a, a sort of ontological status, for lack of a better word, to the missed opportunity? Now, in my world, there's lots of negotiations, and it's pretty clear that people screw up, and there were opportunities to nail things down, and they didn't do it. So they go back to, hit, to hitting each other, and they pay high costs. Maybe they can get back to that point that they had missed. Maybe they can't because of the things that happen after they missed it make it more difficult. And again, with this sort of frame that says, well, it's sort of about revealed information, and once people take the measure of the thing, uh, they're able to settle up. I'm wondering, is there, in, in your view, is there such a thing, or in this approach, is there such a thing as a missed opportunity, and does that mean anything? It may not mean anything. And then the final little thing is, in, the, in my, what I've been exposed to in non-war termination diplomacy, at least practitioners often talk about this dilemma where when people are ahead, when they're the stronger party, they don't want to negotiate because they're ahead and they think they may get you know, a better deal, uh, 3% better in the final negotiation. And when you're weak, you don't want to negotiate because you're in a position of weakness. Everyone says, don't negotiate from a position of weakness. I think that's actually a phrase. And of course, if you don't negotiate when you're strong and you don't negotiate when you're weak, then you pretty, pretty much don't negotiate sincerely unless there's something else that's, you know, that breaks that cycle. So those are three things I see in my world. I, they may not have any relevance to what you're talking about, but be, would be interested in anything that you've seen along the way that gives you uh, thoughts about Sure. No, thank you very much for these questions. Uh, with respect to the first one about information from kind of improved technology facilitating information gathering. Um, I can't directly speak to that because that's not what my research is focused on. However, I would say that despite that informational kind of advantage that might exist today, it does seem like it might not be the reason why conflicts come to an end. Because on one hand, you might kind of interpret it that way because post-45 conflicts have tended to be shorter on average than pre-1945 conflicts. And maybe one mechanism for that is this technology allowing for more information to be gathered. However, what we also see in post-1945 conflicts is that um, sort of the, the likelihood of, of conflict like relapse is also a little bit higher. And there's a lot more sort of tenuous ceasefires that are created, which sort of indicate that um, wars often end these days without as clear of an informational picture of like where the two sides stand. And I think that cuts against like this idea that information is being revealed at an even higher clip than before. Even if it is, these wars often end in a position where I would argue that 
post 45, um, the kind of relative positions of the two sides are not as clearly drawn as they might have been in pre 45 conflicts when they have much more decisive victories and sort of codify victories as opposed to sort of stopping wars um, in the middle. And this is work that um, Suzanne Warner and Amy Wen have done um, about sort of um, battlefield trends and how much they affect uh, conflict relapse. And I think that um, is relevant here in that post 1945 conflicts are often less informational, I would argue. Um, with respect to missed opportunities for peace, I would say that probably the missed opportunities for peace that exist, especially in post-45, may not be as much about actually missing the opportunities, but more about what I mentioned at the end of the talk about um, like kind of entering in the wrong circumstances where the missed opportunity might be that like staying out and not pushing for diplomacy in some cases might actually be better overall for the the um, duration of the conflict or welfare implications compared to constantly trying to seek um, peace at every turn. Um, that's probably what I would focus on more, especially in the contemporary era. Um, and then with respect to the dilemma you pointed out, that's an argument that actually was, um, I think, made by Whitman in the late 70s in like an article about how as kind of um, fighting trends in one side's favor, his argument was that the likelihood of termination should become even lower for the exact reason you suggested, that the stronger party would be emboldened and want to keep fighting. The weaker party would want to keep fighting as well to try to win things back. On some level, I think I agree to some extent with that argument in the sense that I'm saying that like if a party is disadvantaged, but they believe that they can maybe turn things around a little bit through diplomacy, I'm saying that sometimes diplomacy can be used to actually further that cause um, to try to turn things back around. Um, and I'm trying to incorporate that into sort of the broader like bargaining model approach to war and what my evidence does generally show, which is that the more that one side tends to win on the battlefield, it does seem that um, the likelihood of, of war termination increases because according to sort of the bargaining model argument, um, the weaker side will be willing to give more and more generous offers to try to end the war and stop future costs. And at some point, they'll give up. Uh, an offer that's more satisfying to the stronger party. Um, so I'm, I'm going to kind of straddle both sides and say it's a little bit of both, where um, they do try to use negotiations to turn things around, and weaker parties can do that. Uh, but that overall, it doesn't seem to be that this is the dilemma, that usually when one side's winning, um, we do see evidence that they kind of bring wars to a close. Um, hi, thank you. I have, I guess, comments and a question. So the comment is, I wouldn't dismiss sort of the Barry Eric concerns about separating the battlefield strategic aspects of insincerity from the performance insincerity, because it would be a lot, if you manage to make that distinction, it would allow you to distinguish between the small sliver of insincere under low pressure from the large sliver of insincere under high pressure, and you'd be able to show that all of the additional pressure, because I think where your intuition is going, that all of that additional pressure is just performative, mm. and that would in case in that case it would be a very big implication of the argument that all of the negotiations we're seeing in the post forty five world are actually serving zero purpose. Um, but the question that stems from this is, given everything that you presented to us today in the post forty five world, why is it that we're not seeing a hundred percent of the wars having negotiations for the duration of the war? 
What's the reason not to negotiate now that it seems that signaling to the international audience is the thing that you ought to be doing and all of the benefits come from that? And while I'm at the roll, have you ever tried to take out the concert of your peers, at least for the wars where the concert was involved, to see if the external pressure works the same way in those years? Okay, great. No, um, thank you. I, I think that the suggestion about um, the the utility of separating sort of the strategic from the performative is really interesting. Um, I'll have to go back to the cases to see the extent to which I can actually do that. But if possible, I, it would speak to sort of the different motivations and whether um, there's distinctions pre and post uh, 45. With respect to why not all wars um, feature negotiations, um, I think that's a, obviously a reasonable question. Um, to some extent, in other analysis that I do in the paper that I sort of touched upon in the slides, one thing I do mention is that um, there's a distinction in frequency of conflicts also between wars that feature uh, major powers and ones that don't feature major powers. And one of the findings I, I get is that wars featuring major powers just have fewer negotiations. And I sort of take that as evidence that um, these latent external pressures for peace don't apply to them as much because often they're the ones applying the pressure. So um, in many of these wars, it's easier for these major powers to just not talk because um, no one's really has the power to make them talk. And I would say that that's a, a you know, not maybe that's too extreme, but there's a lot less influence on them to talk. And I, I think that um, explains a lot of the sort of distinction and sort of um, why some wars feature less talking um, than others. And the Korean War is one example where for one year they didn't talk to each other. Um, and as much as the UN tried to push the two sides to talk for that year, um, a lot of those efforts didn't really work until sort of military realities uh, caused the two sides to decide to communicate with each other. Um, and then finally, with concept of Europe wars, um, I don't think or I don't recall um, doing that particular test, but I, I, I can't. And I think that would be useful to look into. So I'll, I'll definitely do that. Thank you. Wonderful. So I'm going to group the last two questions. I know there's a few folks haven't gotten to, but I also know that you're coming for lunch. And so you're going to have even more time to ask your question. Um, uh, so my apologies uh, to the two of you. But uh, so Nina and Nick, uh, you know, when you start, then Nick, I'll turn to you, and then you can gather both of them and, sure. and respond to uh, whatever elements are yeah. yeah, so my question is like almost the opposite of Maria's, which is like, why did we ever see negotiation? Um, and part of what I was getting from your discussion of the cost and benefits of negotiation, particularly the battlefield's uh, implications of it, um, is that this might be zero-sum. Um, and if it's not, please correct me. But if it is, then uh, it seems to me like someone is always making a mistake when they enter into a negotiation knowing that it might benefit their adversary more. Um, and if that's the case, like, is it that states just don't uh, anticipate what the effects of this negotiation will be, or that uh, somehow there is like a cooperative element where it benefits both sides. Mm -hmm. Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, of course. Yes. Yeah. Thanks, Taylor. I'll keep this quick. Eric, this was great. Thank you so much. Uh, my question has to do with uh, the question of publicity and privacy in the negotiations, and I'm curious what your theory has to say about this. Um, there was a recent or article about 10 years ago from Karen Yarmilo about how private negotiations can actually be a costly signal because the other party could threaten to disclose. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering, uh, 
you know, latent external pressure, sort of, uh, which, which is doing an enormous amount of work in your theory, sort of assumes that all of these negotiations are public and that they will be picked up by outsiders. And I'm curious, is that actually true? Or are some of the negotiations you're observing kind of private? Um, and what role does that variable potentially have to play in either determining whether an actor is sincere or insincere, or, or even on the outcome of the negotiation itself? Thank you so much. Responded. Okay, cool. Um, Nina, thank you uh, for the question about why we ever see negotiations. Um, I think it's a multifaceted answer, obviously. Um, to some extent, I am arguing that some negotiations are a mistake in the sense that especially if they're used insincerely and one side doesn't realize that, then yeah, that was a mistake to enter negotiations. However, um, one of the, the canonical reasons why negotiations would occur and why they would lead to a diplomatic settlement is that both sides see it as being mutually beneficial because they sort of believe that through what's happened through fighting, they kind of converge upon an expectation of what fighting will continue to kind of reap. And they think that making a settlement now is better than what they might get from continuing to fight. So I do think that there are cases, especially when they do terminate the war, where um, they might not have all the details down, but they generally understand that there are mutually beneficial reasons to stop fighting, but not always. And kind of the not always is part of what I'm trying to address in, in the theory. Um, and then Nick, with the question about publicity and privacy, um, I think that's certainly important. Um, I'll say that in many of the cases, so there certainly are negotiations that are private and others that are public. Um, but especially in contemporary cases, there's a possibility of missing some of those super, super private negotiations that are still classified. But in most cases, I would argue, and we can talk more about this if you're interested, that um, even if we don't know what they're talking about in these talks, they usually do get picked up on. Like People do know that they're happening. So there might be some differences in how much they're able to publicize or like get propaganda benefits from it. Um, but I do think that the active negotiation still gets picked up. And the extent to which that signals anything or doesn't signal anything now um, is still relevant. Um, but that being said, like the distinction between public and private could matter for, for sincerity. And like if you think about the Vietnam War, the Paris peace talks that happened in public were nothing, right? And it was really kind of Kissinger uh, in the background doing most of the actual sincere lifting. So I think there is a distinction there. Um, and yeah, there is, certainly is a distinction there. I'll just add it there. Wonderful. We've ended exactly at our, 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 our point of termination Great. in the seminar. Uh, and so uh, please join me, everyone, in thanking uh, Eric Vin for a wonderful time. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Wednesdays with SSP. This is Chris Burns signing off.